Takpase in Minnesota. Welcome back to another episode of Parlay. And I'm so excited for our guest today. I'm your co-host, Dominique Pierre Toussaint. And I'm Jen Westmoreland. How's it going, JW? You know what? I am tired of the snow. I'm going to be real with you. I am just, I'm ready for anything but snow. Uh, well, Honestly. Well, we're going to continue having some because we're in Minnesota. <laughs> we're in Minnesota. Um, yeah, so um, like I said, we have a special guest today. Um, I want to take a moment, though, to, to have a moment of silence uh, for a Minnesota great that passed away today. Um, my condolences go out to Mike Grant and his family. Rest in peace, Bud Grant, legendary Vikings coach. Welcome back. I just want to say that it is an honor to sit down with this gentleman that has uh, been a friend of mine for quite a few years now, since we were since our sons were four years old. But after this uh, commercial break and a few words from our community supporters, we'll sit down with the new AFL commissioner, Mr. Lee A. Hutton. Well, welcome back to Parlay. I am so excited to see Lee. We haven't seen each other in a while. Um, Lee, I've learned a lot from Lee about the criminal legal system, <laughs> about sports. We were just talking about my complete lack of knowledge of sports, which you all experienced during the Mike Max interview. Um, and so, <laughs> so I was asking Lee to go easy on me uh, about the sports, the sports portions of this this particular episode. But just so great to see you, Lee, and really wonderful to have you on Parlay. I've been looking forward to this. Well, I'm so glad to be here. And uh, for the listening audience, uh, your sports knowledge is much more capable than you give credit to. So, Sakpase, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Lee Hutton. Good. You're good? You're I'm good? I'm good. I'm great. Well, before we start, I want to go back to a time when you uh, first opened your eyes to this world. Mm. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. Well, I come from uh, San Antonio, Texas, uh, Santa Rosa Hospital uh, at 7.47 a.m. Boy, you got that down to I a got path. it down <laughs> to a path. I even know my doctor's name, Dr. Hadnot. I do. I do. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I've always been that kid to pay attention to details, uh, be kind of that uh, historian in life, because I think the way that uh, you come in this world, uh, the things, good or bad, that shaped you to be here, or uh, the things that are either going to guide you uh, in a positive or negative way. And it's always important to know where you come from. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. While you were in Texas, what did you participate in in high school? Golly, I can tell you when I was young, I was probably like many kids um, that didn't know what path to go. I was shy, didn't really have any friends. Uh, I, you know, I, I was a geek, Star Wars geek. So I had all the action figures, lined them up every Saturday morning. My uh, grandmother and my parents would take me uh, to Toys R Us where I had a budget to get one or two action figures, and that was the highlight of my day. Uh, and then, you know, and this is where, you know, people who cross your path just really, uh, I think I have a quote that I have uh, from you uh, when I did a, a speech, is that uh, you never know whose life you're going to impact uh, you know, somebody that you impact that you don't even know. Uh, I had a teacher who thrust me into a spelling bee and a talent show. And so once you, you know, as a young black kid in Texas where they would group you by race, uh, and so, you know, the black kids would uh, be here, the Latinos, uh, English as a second language would be in a group, uh, and the resources were divvied to who they want, and those two groups didn't get those resources. So Mrs. Caldwell uh, forced me to be in the spelling bee. Who, what kid wants to be in the spelling bee where you have to study? And I ended up getting second place in that spelling bee the confidence started to grow. Uh, after that, uh, she entered me into the talent show 
well, the only thing I knew I was a break dancer because I wanted to be okay. I wanted okay. to be Lee from Beat Street. <laughs> so, so as a hidden jewel, uh, Dominique comes over to my house and we'll spend hours in, in Tracy, yes, hours watching Beat Street break in <laughs> and and all in Crush Groove. That's right. That's <laughs> so, right. And so, why? So I wanted to be the, uh, uh, Lee on Beat Street, and I won the talent show. I made a hundred bucks and saved that hundred bucks for a long time. Uh, and then that kind of uh, kind of got me to a crowd that people started to notice you, where you wanted to be uh, near me, which was kind of an odd experience, but it, it definitely started developing my leadership skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a coach, Coach Larry, uh, who had entered in me into track, and you. Get on the line, uh, Jesse Owens Arco games, which don't exist anymore. And I wish they did, uh, because he had this great historical figure with Jesse Owens who really, uh, kind of defined, uh, the black American experience in a time where, uh, it wasn't uplifting at all. Uh, in the United States, uh, uh, didn't give him credit that was due, uh, but it showed the world, uh, that, uh, black people in America did exist and had a lot of substance more than just being uh, athletes. So I was in this uh, competition uh, and ended up winning the 100 and then winning again and going all the way to nationals. Uh, and then I said, I guess I'm a track athlete now. Uh, and so as that experience started to grow, I, I used athletics to also, you know, enhance my academic experience. Because what we were talking earlier that when you had teachers and coaches that wouldn't give you any slack. You know, if you were tardy, there was there was not the the message that went home. The coaches and the teachers took care of it, and you wanted them to because if it went home to your parents, that was a really big issue. But the teachers and the coaches actually cared. You know, they uh, kind of gave you the roadmap uh, that was uh, at least for me, uh, kind of that guiding you know, force, because I was the oldest kid, which means that my parents were kind of finding uh, their financial stability. Uh, and, and you know, my, my sister and brother, you know, certainly when my dad became a doctor and got on his feet, I, I remember living in a one-bedroom house at that time. You know, my brother and sister are much younger than me, so they didn't. Uh, but as a young kid, as a latchkey kid, you, you were trying to find yourself, too. And there were a lot of questions, and sometimes you kind of talk to yourself about life, you know, right or wrong. But uh, Coach Larry and Coach Caldwell uh, certainly were uh, the people that uh, guided me in a positive direction. Uh, one day, another coach uh, came in and said, you know, you're fast in track, come play football. And this was during a time where I wanted to be a basketball player, but I just stopped growing and, you know, for the best. And I was so upset that uh, I didn't get a starting spot on the varsity team my sophomore year. So I quit and the coach let me walk off. And I thank him today that he did. You know, at that time, I said, why didn't he chase me? But I'm, I'm glad he didn't. I, then another coach brought me onto the football team. I started doing punt returns. The first punt return in the first game, I ran for a touchdown. And since then, athletics has, yep, athletics has been the, the pathway to uh, a lot of my success today. Let me ask you, what was the demographics at your high school? Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, there's a story behind the story. Uh, when I was a freshman, I went to a predominantly white school. Uh, I was in a bio- biology class. It was honors classes. And to get into honors at that time, you would either have to score high on a test. You would either have to get a teacher recommendation or you have to have somebody place you in there. Well, as a young black kid... Uh, uh, the, I, I was fine on the test, but you needed the teacher recommendation. No teachers would give it to me. Mm-hmm. And so my parents had to advocate and push. So I'm in this honors classes, and this uh, professor, Dr. Bauer, and I will say his name, and I think we had a terrible relationship, but this negative experience actually shaped my life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to, in a positive direction. Uh, I wrote a paper, and I was so... Pr- 
proud of this paper because it was on prostate cancer. My dad was a urologist. I studied. I had all the books. Uh, my parents, if you ever know my parents, they're kind of you-do-it-yourself before you come to me type of parents. So I wrote this paper, and it was not necessarily about prostate cancer, but it was about my father being uh, one of the first black physicians, and this was kind of his field of study, and I, I wanted to be a doctor back then. And I turned in the paper, and it comes back with an A question mark. This is the best paper I've ever seen. Did you write it? Wow. And my parents went up to the school. And the next thing you know, here again, we're advocating uh, for myself being this young black kid uh, to be seen as equal to the other kids that didn't look like me. Um, after that, I, I just told my parents I didn't want to go back to school. And my parents took me out of school, and I went to Lamarck, Texas, uh, which is the neighboring school. Uh, and uh, it was predominantly black. When I say predominantly black, it was 90% black. So I went from a 90% white school to the school across the tracks, literally the 90%. However, uh, and I was talking with uh, Tracy earlier, that some of the schools with the with very little resources actually do the most with what they have. And that was my experience at Lamarck High School. And so here I am with uh, uh, a black principal, a black superintendent, black teachers. I mean, the lunch care lady would, would, uh, would discipline us if we were tardy to class. <laughs> you know? And that was, it, was, it was really the essence of community. Um, the first game that we had was against my school that I left, and they sent uh, a dozen black flowers with my name on it. Uh, and everyone, yep, everyone rallied, rallied behind me. I think I scored five touchdowns that game and never looked back. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So after high school, what path yeah. led you to get Mr. Into this Hutton frozen right tundra? Here. Yeah, what did you, what, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing else left to say. And I have to honestly say, even as uh, you know, coming through, uh, I'm still trying to find myself because uh, even with a lot of success, uh, you know, as a national ranked hurdler, a good football player. Uh, it was funny because when I left the other school, Dickinson, Texas, I had a coach that said I would never be good at hurdles. Well, the first thing I wanted to do when I went to the new school was to run hurdles. And that year, I made it to state as a sophomore year, made it state's junior year, and then uh, broke the national record my senior year. And so that was kind of a thumb on his face, like, you were wrong uh, with me. And I'm glad that happened because it, it was uh, that experience that I could control uh, to say, no matter what people think of me, I'm the one that controls my destiny, uh, no matter what happens. Uh, back then in 1994, when I graduated, uh, you didn't have social media as it was today. So I'm sending out VHS tapes and, you know, dealing with uh, trips when coaches. Uh, there was a really great uh, individual by the name of uh, Jim Wacker, who was from Texas, and he wanted to bring fast guys uh, to the University of Minnesota where he was kind of struggling to kind of get the, um, uh, the team moving. So I came up with him uh, in 1994, uh, and I remember when I stepped into uh, school, they said, what do you want to do uh, for a living? And uh, I said, I don't know. I just saw this movie with Eddie Murphy called Boomerang. He was an ad exec, so I guess I'll be an ad exec. So I, I, I enrolled into advertising, which is kind of a mixture of um, uh, speech com, uh, journalism, uh, and also the business side uh, in Carlson. So I had to take classes in those various uh, disciplines. Um, uh, in 1994, uh, it was kind of an interesting year for me because you start to know that the world is much bigger than your surroundings. Because when you go into Texas, Texas really only had four type of ethnic groups that we thought. Black, white, uh, which was a lot of friction. I come from the area where uh, James Byrd was decapitated, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, over in Beaumont. So that's the area I grew up in. As a matter of fact, my mother just finished a book that three generations of our family had a visit from the Ku Klux Klan, mm. you know, and so that's the area where, you know, people are still trying to find their way to coexist. And so I come up here and there's Norwegian and Sweden. I had no idea of what that <laughs> was. And so the world just became much bigger uh, uh, for me, but also um, very humbling 
Uh, and so through the years, I just kind of, uh, I just kind of rode the roller coaster, said I'm going to open my mind and kind of learn as much as I can. And it really brought me to you guys. I'm curious about the manifestations of racism that you found when you came here to Minnesota and how you experienced those, um, because the way racism appears mm-hmm. here is so different than what you were describing about where you had grown up. I, I can tell you, I'm still uh, digesting that, even at my age of 47. Uh, I was somewhat very active with George Floyd, and George Floyd, there was a lot of connection between he and I, because he was from Texas, as a matter of fact, he was just down the street in Texas, uh, played at a school that was just right outside of my conference in Yates. Um, and so when I saw George Floyd, it was hard not to see a little nugget of myself. Mm-hmm. And so when they were talking about, you know, George Floyd uh, and, and some of his, um, uh, you know, struggles in life, which we all have, uh, you know, makes you think, what do they think of me, mm-hmm. even despite my success? Uh, and so when uh, I compare my experience in Texas and my experience here, I, I hate to say this, I think Minnesota um, is really in uh, a high alert, cold red situation. What I mean by that is that we often find ourselves running away from solving the issue. You know, Texas uh, has this ability of being in your face and you know what people think and it's there. Blunt. Uh, it's very blunt. And I think that Minnesota has a false narrative where they tell themselves because there's a lot of um, racial mixing, uh, there's uh, a smaller city, so we're uh, either close proximity that everything's okay. And I can tell you, you know, Minnesota has to wake up because the George Floyd situation, the way it happened on TV or on camera, where the officers knew they were being filmed, um, knew that the person couldn't breathe, and then continued to act with I can't even say reckless disregard, but can you to act with criminal intent is the best way to put it. Um, uh, it manifests the culture and the identity of Minnesota. And I don't say that to disparage Minnesota, but you have to say what it is because that's the only way you can fix it. Um, and, you know, Texas, we had the George uh, or the James Bird situation where somebody was decapitated uh, behind the, the, the truck, uh, but it wasn't done on camera. Uh, where somebody can make the conscious decision to at least have the wherewithal to stop. And and that's when you really have to, in, in the, the legal field, we have this term called mens rea. Like, what is your ultimate intent in doing it? And so you have to conclude that the intent of those officers, and rightfully so, they were convicted, that their intent was to kill. And and so when I, you know, gather my experience, even in the law profession, um, we're supposed to be the gladiators of how humans socially interact with one another because we deal with laws, we um, uh, create um, uh, initiatives on how people should interact, whether it be employment law, whether it be discrimination law, but yet we're the profession that has the smallest diversity pool, whether it be women, whether it be minorities. I mean, you look at uh, African-American attorneys in Minnesota, I think there's 30 to 40,000 licensed attorneys here. Of those attorneys that are African-American that are licensed, you're 400. Mm -hmm. So if you are looking for somebody that looks like you, that wants to represent you because they may understand kind of where you're coming from and to articulate whatever pain um, uh, you have, um, you have 400. Now when you dissect that 400, how many of those 400 actually do uh, business lit or crim lit? You know? And so the percentages go down. And then the ones that work for large law firms. You know, I, I, I think at one time um, we would joke, me and a couple of other attorneys, that there were like 20 of us. If we were on a plane and the plane, you know, crashed, there there would be all your, you know, partners of the major law firms. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, a lot of people have been somewhat upset, but I don't know how else to be. Uh, but candid, um, uh, the Minnesota legal profession has a serious problem. Uh, and if they don't correct the legal profession, going back to your question, uh, uh, Jen, is that there's no way we can change society. Wow. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you. You were talking about 
George Floyd. Mm. When that occurred during the pandemic, I want to ask you, how did that situation and the pandemic, what made you, what enhan- what enhancement did you do to your thought process and your career? Sure. You know, for um, the, the George Floyd situation, um, I think, you know, whatever spirituality you have, whether you're Christian or just spiritual or um, it doesn't matter. I think the George Floyd and the pandemic reminded us that we're all connected in some way because it forced us um, to actually witness something in isolation and really give it some thought. Um, I am disappointed with Minnesota because I think we brushed that issue over. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think we're, you know, when I say we, you know, I, I think we have to do more at the uh, political level to never let that happen again, which mm-hmm. means we have to remind ourselves that um, uh, that that's a really bad situation. You know, I mean, we've had uh, one of the most terrible hangings of uh, African-Americans happen Duluth, and that was in Minnesota. So to ignore the fact that this uh, is is plaguing, you know, our society uh, is, is a, it's a downfall. But, you know, when, when that happened in, in isolation, uh, and what it did did for me, um, and it's interesting because my wife is foreign, and she comes from Mexico, and there's always this talk that Mexico is dangerous and this, and it, it brought even her a new perspective of how dangerous it is just to get in your car and go to your office, you know, how dangerous it is, you know, to be driving after dark, um, and um, to, to ab- absorb that in isolation where, you know, I think if it wasn't for you, I think we talked almost daily just about it. And, you know, I think of people who didn't have, you know, a close person to like digest something because the Mm -hmm. anger consumes you, you know, and it consumes your thoughts. And then if it's not anger, the sadness is probably even more destructive because you look out the window and and when I say look out the window, you see like this gray cloud um, I, of, of, of what George Floyd um, future became and how easily it could have been you, you know, and, and that's not a far cry. And I think for people to really understand that, um, they have to be reminded of, of, of how that situation happened, you know, and, and people think that situation happened because of a, of a counterfeit $20 bill. No, that no, situation happened because we didn't fix anything between the hangings in, in Duluth. That situation happened because we have this, this, you know, kind of disgusted, misguided thinking uh, of critical race theory of being a thing that happened because we're not educating ourselves yes. uh, and it will continue to happen uh, because we have forgotten already about what happened with George Floyd. Lee, one of the first times we connected, it was mm. about your, your care for um, some black youth within Hopkins schools mm. and, and how they were experiencing a, a portion of our athletic programming mm. and you wanted better for them. Yep. And we connected in that capacity because I'm on the school board and you're a parent yep. and a brilliant community member mm, who, who had a lot to, to bring forward. And I'm... Um, Dom and I are um, part of some conversations around um, social isolation that occurred because Mm. of the pandemic and the impact that that's having on youth in our community. And I'm wondering if you've observed that. You were talking about Mm. that, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, um, how being isolated was um, was a really difficult experience in terms of being able to process the, the trauma and the, the, the traumatic ripple effects of, of that particular event. Sure. Um, wondering if, how, or if you're seeing that in, in young black boys and, and young men in our community. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what I see is, I, I think the manifestation is even uh, growing because of that, because I think there was already an isolation of young black men and boys uh, here. And, and I remember the situation you talk about, and I, I have to thank you. I, I To this day, I actually praise you because it was one phone call and Jen, I don't know what type of car you drive, but you were there within five minutes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it, my it, trusty Prius. <laughs> well, whatever that Prius must have wings, but I mean, the, 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 the fact that you just came and listened and investigated and, um, and we need 
you know, I wish we can duplicate you, you know, a hundred times over, because if we are able to do that, the isolation doesn't go away. And the reason why I say that isolation was um, in effect way before that uh, is because, you know, we've, we are getting away from um, uh, black youth uh, just having something to do. Mm-hmm. And, and I see this even, um, you know, as a, as a coach, as uh, somebody who's in the sports industry, uh, you can take scholarships, for example. There was one time when I was growing up, you'd go to the playground um, and develop your skills and then go play high school sports and maybe get uh, rewarded uh, to get your school paid for. Now people are spending $30,000, if not more, a year to have professional trainers. Well, if you're a kid, whether you're black or anything else, below a certain uh, you know, economic line, and I, even middle class. I mean, how many parents can afford 30000 a year to get you some of the best training? Yeah. So what's happening is that those individuals who are getting the training are now starting to get the scholarships mm-hmm. paid for. And I, I was talking to Tracy earlier. We live in a capitalistic society, like it or not, which means that everything has a price tag on it. And so, you know, you look at gas prices going high. Well, that's a price tag that they put, and the people that can pay for gas get it. The people who can't, don't. And then the people who are not able to sustain the lifestyle, then that just goes down. The isolation gets uh, from anger into sadness. And once you get into sadness, depression, uh, and the whole thought process that I don't deserve, you know, mm-hmm. I don't need. Uh, I, and and, and that's, that gets to a point that is, is very hard to shake. It's very hard to, you know, when you hit that rock bottom, uh, and so that's why I thank you for that, because, you know, even, you know, we have to help people that we don't know. We, we, we just do, you know, because there, there are people in our society. I mean, there's probably people in our build, this building that are at rock bottom and we just don't even know. So let me ask you something about social media, mm-hmm. especially if it's connected to the youth mm-hmm. um, with social media that I feel like. The new generation um, don't understand that when it's recorded, mm-hmm. when it's out there, um, in, in any fashion of a way, I believe they're not educated enough on it. Right. Even though they feel like they understand the technology. Right. But they don't understand the 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 next steps that happens to whatever that they're positive or negative. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And why not? Um, don't understand that this is something that could affect you even when it goes into scholarships. Yep. Um, jobs. Uh, you know what? I'm going to stop. I'm going to tell mm-hmm. me what's your perspective on this now? So what's going on now? As a business owner and as somebody who's hired people, the first thing I do is look at people's social media. Mm-hmm. And it is as simple as having a song with the N-word on it. And, you know, that's a topic that we can we can talk about in debate uh, on the other side. But anything that you have is certainly going to reach your potential job employer or, you know, teacher or any school before you do. And that's a reflection. And it's also a reflection that you're not even there to defend yourself, you know, to explain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're really kind of submitting your your argument without any oral argument to follow. Um, uh, and people can take whatever conclusion they have. Um, you know, I often remind my kids, and my kids probably get um, uh, a tough angle on this because um, I get cases in my office all the time where uh, you would have an underage kid uh, who sends uh, a very racy photo uh, to their girlfriend who's all, also underage. Well, child, child pornography has strict liability. And mm-hmm. those kids have been tried and convicted uh, of felonies. And, of course, if you're a minority kid, you may get the book thrown at you a little bit harder than others. Uh, and so you really just have to um, understand that with that type of communication, uh, as all communication comes with a lot of responsibility, and it's something that can't be erased or thrown away. I may have kids that say, well, I threw my phone in the river. Well, you know. It's stored in, the, in cloud. the cloud. It's somewhere, and so you just really have to be careful. I, one of one of biggest fears uh, with with kids uh, for me is that social media content. It's one of my fears as well, mm-hmm. and one especially in the educational field right yeah. now because we're seeing it through the school district yeah. principals having to deal with it um, and such. Um, so, Lee, 
Now you're you've been an attorney for how many years? Golly, since two thousand two. Two thousand two, and I know you've received a lot of accolades. But there's been a huge accolade mm. that came your way. First of all, I'm just amazed that you are one of the first in U.S. history to be a commissioner of a professional sport. First of all, I give, I give a hand <laughs> for that. Thank and whatnot. you. Yeah. I'm glad we're finally talking about sports. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jen was waiting for her we, cue. We she two, was like, "We had too much politics <laughs> going on right now. We got to jump into the sports." <laughs> First of all, how did that come? Oh from? my gosh, um, it 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 really fell into my lap. Um, for many years, uh, when I started my practice, when I was in law school, um, based on what you look like, they say, you need to go into criminal law. You need to do this. I, was, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to dress like those guys in three-piece suits, you know? And, and I kind of forced my way. All the large law firms, and I am going to call you out, the Dorsey Whitney's, uh, the, uh, the Oppenheimers, they refused to bring me into, uh, for an interview. Yeah. Absolutely refused. Um, and then uh, I went to a small medium insurance defense firm and I had to work to get that job. I would call early in the morning so I can be the first voice that the attorney picked up on his answer machine. I would wake up four o'clock in the morning. I would do anything just to get notice. Thankfully, they hired me. And in that time, the cases that I tried to get was the ones against the Dorseys and ones against the Oppenheimers. <laughs> and I would say, I'm not the smartest in the room, but I will outwork you. And I was successful. And, you know, kind of like this, um, you know, I do, I really think that um, if I can teach a class, it wouldn't be arithmetic, it wouldn't be anything uh, like that. It would be how to take your life experiences and use them as the wind behind you to push you forward. And so when um, uh, football, being told that you can't do this and then succeeding, that's how I became a good attorney. Because when, you know, when I'm told, you don't know how to try the case, all right, see you in the courtroom. Scared. <laughs> now, I, I was scared. But you go in the courtroom and you start realizing that, wow, these guys are really bad. They're really, really bad. And I started winning cases and winning cases, and now everybody started recruiting me. They wanted me in. And so I, I then went to some large law firms, and I will talk about this. Uh, one of the large law firms I went to, um, I was uh, applied to be the athletic director at the University of Minnesota because they needed some diversity. And I uh, put my name uh, in the hat, and then all of a sudden the scandal came out. And uh, it was it was a it was a tough scandal. It's probably one of the toughest times in my in my career. Uh, one of the times I wanted to quit uh, being a lawyer. Hmm. So ten black kids were accused of of sexual assault, and I remember sitting them down and I said one thing that I will not tolerate is you lying to me. This is serious. And we closed the door. I threw some chairs. Uh, everybody was in tears. But I needed to know that if I'm going to support them, especially out of my own pocket, people think I made a lot of money. I got zero from it. Hmm. And the one thing that I did, I said, for me at that stage, until I you know, dove into the facts, but at that stage, I wanted everybody to have a fair due process. The University of Minnesota represented the young lady with all their resources, and they left the kids with no attorney. A lot of kids who couldn't afford an attorney. And the only one that could afford was Anton, Antoine Winfield. Um, and his parents were great. They, they were going to pay for him, and they even suggested that they would pay for other ones. But I said, that wouldn't be fair to you. I'll do it for free. While I was a partner of a major law firm, Barnes and & Thornburg. And there was one day the kids came over to my office, and I was told that they couldn't come through the front door. And I said, What? Get that racist out of my office. Mm -hmm. And so the next day I took all my files. I took them from every attorney because no attorney wanted to say who was the one who said that. Mm. If that's a game we're playing. Mm. Don't work on my stuff. And so and what was interesting, uh, I had another case, which is on TMZ. Uh, I was representing Robert Hershevac from Shark Tank, who was also accused. And so I said, why are we treating him any differently than these kids of color? Right. And I was so upset. Uh, I, I, and, and 
getting death threats, getting, you know, pictures of Hopkins School. I know where your kids go. I mean, it really? was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I talked to you. Oh, somebody. Sometimes I talk to you about terrifying. it. And, and it's terrifying because we, when it crosses the line where your family is kind of a target, yes. you, you, you have to make the choice that I don't think any person should ever be in, you know where you have to choose your family over your career. And, and that, was, that was hard because if I would have left, the boys would be out with nothing. But if I would have stayed, I may have made the best, the worst mistake in my life hmm. if somebody would have harmed my kids. Um, and, you know, thankfully it was just coward, coward talk. Um, I, I remember the voices of my Southern grandmother. She said, well, if you're going to shoot me, you better not miss. And so <laughs> I went right on TV. I said, this is what happened. If you're going to shoot me, you better not miss. And that kind of subsided. But it, it really kind of pushed back. And I, you know, worked with the University of Minnesota. I rejected kind of the conversation because for me, the issue um, was definitely the issue. There is sexual violence that happens on a daily basis that we, again, going to ignore. And nobody wants to have the conversations about it. I mean, quite frankly, um, when my um, uh, daughter was born, the first thing you want to do is protect her. You know, whoever she's in a relationship with, you want her to treat her with respect and all this. And then in a kind of a sexist mentality, you forget about your boys, Mm. you know, but you want people mm-hmm. to treat them with the same respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, then you start forgetting that, no, I have to teach my kids to respect others and demand that respect at that same time. And so, you know, um, I, a lot of my cases has kind of, you know, developed my parenting style, you know, whether it be uh, out of fear or just out of uh, just learning. But uh, it's... Uh, I get on a rant. I forgot the question, but you know this. Yeah, I thought we were going to talk about sports. Yeah, we thought. You know, how did I get into this? And <laughs> no, you oh were, my gosh! Yeah, you were leading. You were leading into um, the path um, going into the, the AFL position. Yeah. So okay, we'll get on that. Uh, we'll, I'll, I'll come back and we can finish that story. Uh, so as um, I, I started to develop. I, I, this, this kind of sports industry pet practice, I met a lot of people. So I was on this. Who did you meet? Well, by the way, I met uh, who you represented. Well, which one? I got, I got to go with the Hopkins. I got to talk about Hopkins. Oh, with Chris Humphreys. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that does tie, it dovetail into this. Uh, I was flying to uh, Los Angeles, never had met Chris Humphreys before. (laughs) And uh, I upgraded $50 on Sun Country Airline, and I'm sitting in front of William Humphreys, Chris Humphreys' father. And um, it's my first time ever in first class, and I didn't know they gave you unlimited wine. And so, so oh, it's fantastic. And hometown I'll never airline. experience it, so you guys go ahead. So somebody who was randomly upgraded to first class on a flight to it's Chicago. It's the best thing ever. I'm like, it's, I'll take it. It's the best thing <laughs> ever. Now we're in first so, class. Sometimes you don't want to leave. Like, we're here already. I didn't finish my movie. <laughs> you know? so, so I'm sitting in front of William Humphreys. William uh, taps me on my shoulder and asks me, um, you know, what am I doing here? And we started talking. He told me that Chris Humphrey was his son. And at that time, Chris was dating Kim Kardashian. Everything was good. And so I said, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a sports attorney. Oh, really? We're thinking about hiring a new sports attorney. I said, well, why don't you ask these questions to whomever you're going to hire? And I said, why don't you practice them on me? So after a couple of drinks and refilling uh, our glasses, he's asking me questions to my you know, my questions, I'm giving answers to my questions. And we just kind of fell in love. Uh, and he says, uh, where are you staying? And I was staying way across town in Calabasas. He said, well, I want you to come uh, to a party that Chris and uh, Kim are having. And this really gets weird. So we're sitting. So I go, I meet Kim, I meet Chris. And Chris had some Chinese executives for a shoe. My kids go to a Chinese immersion school here. And so ever since they're young, you know, I've never taken formal Chinese in my life. But when you help your kids with their homework, you kind of absorb some stuff. So here I am having a very kind of beginning level conversation with Chinese executives to help close the deal for for Chris. And of course, I look like a rock star. Um, uh, After several meetings, I signed Chris as a client. And so we're going through the show, um, uh, dealing with scripts and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And then Chris says, I want to get married. 
Okay. Well, when we do the prenup, I, I was at the wedding. I was on the wedding show. They get married. And 72 days later, I walk off the plane and Chris says, did you see the TV? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, Chris, uh, Kim is divorcing me. Mm -hmm. I'll meet you at my house. Let's go. And at that time, when you go through something that devastating in a person's life, they actually become your family. I mean, to this day, I still represent the Humphrey family, but, you know, we talk on a level that is not client and uh, lawyer anymore. It's, it's, it's family. Yeah, it's family. You know, hey, I just had a, you know, such and such is getting married. I just had a baby or, you know, those type of life events that we've uh, experienced. And so, um, uh, but when I was going to, California, almost every other weekend, um, I meet an individual by the name of Trebel Gaines. And Trebel Gaines is the top performance uh, uh, trainer, uh, I think, in the world. Um, he's worked with Kobe Bryant, worked with LeBron, he's worked with Tom Brady, he's Gurley, I mean, you name it, uh, he's there. Well, Travell, um, at that time, was training uh, Puff Daddy, Sean Combs. <laughs> and he was training uh, Kendra Wilkinson, uh, and that's how I got on Kendra Wilkinson's that's what I was show. Say, with and Hank so Baskin. through with Hank Baskett, and so uh, Travell, and Travell Gaines was kind of the um, the glue, and so we really became really good friends. And so uh, Travell uh, called me up mid December, and Travell said. John Fry, uh, who's the owner of Fry Electronics, just bought the intellectual property of the AFL out of bankruptcy, and I want you to be the commissioner. Okay. <laughs> I'm too busy. Don't worry about it. Let me know if you guys need an attorney. And so um, he said, yep, we need legal work, too. Um, uh, the first two weeks, uh, I started analyzing the trademark, started writing the bylaw, started doing this, and I became... Uh, well-versed into um, that kind of sports industry field. And it started getting fun. Uh, and they said, Lee, we're going to ask you again. We need a commissioner. And we all flew to Vegas through a party. And I think they put on this, you know, sales pitch. You know, this would be life-changing. You know, here is the plan. You'll be here for five years. Maybe be uh, president of the NFL team. And it started really looking good. And I said, well... Can we have the front office that is diverse? Yep, you get to choose. Um, can I get some ownership in the AFL? Yep, that's what we're here to talk about. And so they just rolled out the red carpet. Uh, and so we didn't even know until about a week before we were going to make the announcement. We are going to make the announcement February 1st because we needed to to, to let people know so we can get the fans excited because we're going to play April 2024. And the, our PR person said, I think you're going to be the first black commissioner ever in professional sports. And so we did some research, and in the history of professional sports, you name it, there's never have been one. There you wow. go. And and it just just so happened to be on Black History Month. I was going to say, yeah, perfect and, timing. And it was perfect timing, and I'm excited. I'm still kind of absorbing. I be, I've really been on the job for 60 days. Um, but we have a great staff. Uh, we have some people that are dedicated. We're selecting owners for various teams. I'm dedicated to getting a team here, so I'm saving a spot for Minneapolis. We have about two potential owners, but we haven't closed the deal. But I want I want something in the Target Center. So when is uh, the league supposed to start up? Like so. Great question. So um, 2024 is where we're going to say, and we're very meticulous because uh, our pitch is we're not outdoor football. In, in NFL is outdoor football. XFL is outdoor football. USFL, outdoor football. We are a brand of indoor football. And indoor football came about by a guy named Jim Foster back in 1987 who owned an NFL team and a USFL team. And on a napkin, and this is where you encourage your kids, like, if you have an idea, just put it on a napkin. And he, he had this concept of playing this fast-paced game of football indoors uh, with the weather element, and it grew. And for 30 years, the AFL uh, went really strong. Now, they didn't have television contracts. And so as the sports industry tr started to 
uh, be more of a business. You know, even college football became more of a business. Uh, the AFL struggled uh, to kind of keep up, and so we were overshadowed by college football and the NFL, and so they didn't uh, leverage any the broadcast media. So they went into bankruptcy about 30 years after uh, 1987 uh, and then came back again. Well, in that second round that they have, they lasted for about 10 years. This is where it gets interesting. So they had a bunch of owners, um, very rich owners, not diverse, um, who were more interested in hosting up a trophy than they were about the integrity of games. So there's allegations that some of them paid uh, players not to show up, and it really hurt the game. Mm -hmm. And again, they didn't have the television contracts, and they forgot about the fan engagements. And there were some really good owners um, uh, with some legacy teams like the New Orleans Voodoo. Uh, I mean, just a great logo, great team, great city. Uh, Philadelphia Soul, who Bon Jovi at the time uh, was part of it. And yeah, there are stories that Bon Jovi would do a little set. I mean, how great would it be to have an intimate concert, uh, you know, paying a $40 ticket or less uh, for a game? And I'd go to that for a Absolutely. 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 Yeah. And so um, now it's under my, my leadership and watch, and I want to do things differently because um, I think the NFL, who we're going to be partnered with, um, I want to do things uh, similar but a little different. What I mean by that, I think the misconception is that football is a sport that only men watch. That is, If you look at the stats, that is not true. 50% or more are women that watch football, um, uh, which is the reason why if, if crumble cookies, I'm trying to get with the CEO of crumble cookies, I want crumble cookies in every stadium. I love those cookies. Right? Um, <laughs> have you had them? So, so think about okay. if we have have a team in New Orleans that's playing in the Smoothie Center, and you can get um, a, a crumble cookie that is beignet flavored. Oh. It, wouldn't it be great? So I'm thinking outside the box to really make the experience much better. Um, we have um, a tremendous colleague of mine who is a senior vice president at a with Def Jam, and he knows nothing about football, but he knows how to put on concerts. So he did the uh, production for uh, Nicki Minaj and the Conde. He's worked with Justin Bieber. So he's bringing in kind of that entertainment, just purely, you know, just fan engagement. And You're getting the mentality of a Jerry Buss. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, okay. I watched that documentary probably about six, seven times. I was going to say this. And, and I am. And I, I really want that. And, and you know, it's it's been kind of humbling for me because yeah, I was telling Jen earlier that I thought I knew the industry a lot more than I did. But being on this side where you're kind of a CEO and really kind of playing chess moves. So we had to take the map of our uh, what we call legacy teams. There are some teams that were in areas that really just didn't do well. And you want all the owners to have um, the same type of success. Otherwise, you know, the, the weak link uh, can be an issue. So um, we met with a company called ASM Global. And ASM Global is a management company, and we met with them at the Super Bowl. And I can tell you, just just good people, you know, with partnerships. And I and I always say that uh, I never want to tell anybody no. You know, when they say, "Can we work with you?" I say it's a possibility, and we just need to figure out how that happens. And when they said, "We'll work with you," it's a possibility. They control probably about ninety percent of the. Uh, stadium management. And so we're getting to all the arenas. And I said, well, I want arenas with this specs. What cities are you in? And they gave us the cities. I said, okay, are they in markets where I believe we can sustain uh, a franchise? So then we started moving owners into those various markets. Um, there's a possibility that we may have a team in Mexico City. And I'm very interested in bringing the game internationally uh, as well. And we just we're, we have our broadcast deal, we have our streaming deal, uh, and we have uh, our apparel deal. So it's it's coming in pretty nicely. We have a question, and and this is for all my our, our listeners um, who might have my same level of sports knowledge. Um, so when you talk about an indoor football mm -hmm. game, and you said it was faster. Does that mean faster paced? Like I won't get as bored when I'm watching it? Or? That's, ex that's exactly right. So if you <laughs> can imagine, <laughs> well, if you can imagine, and, and as soon as we start, you have front row tickets. Um, and front row tickets, if you literally want to sit front row, if you can imagine 
uh, sideboards where players are hit in the side like hockey. Oh, wow. So that happens. And the scores are not your 7-3 to three typically. Typically average scores are in the 40s, and so there's a lot of scoring. Uh, there's a lot of hitting. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of just contact and action. So you, know, you, you will not be bored. And the halftime show, uh, we want it to greatest show on earth. And I love when you know, I tell people, I said, I'm the greatest negotiator ever. And so we're negotiating with some arenas, and they say, um, you know, we're going to take all the concessions. We're going to take 100% of it. And I said, great, we have a deal. And we walk out, and the guy says, why did you just do that? Nobody gives 100% concessions. I was like, I said, here, this is where we're going to put put uh, a Rihanna or, or a Tiger or something to perform. They said, well, what does that mean with a concession? I said, nobody's going to leave their seats. <laughs> I said, good luck with him selling some popcorn when we have there. And so, and he said, well, what's going to happen? I said, I said, we are going to then be renegotiating. Now we're going to get 70% of the concessions. So it's, it's just interesting. And, um, I, I've learned so much, and I've learned so much from my colleagues. And mm-hmm. we have this person, uh, Tracy Leiden, uh, who's from the NFL. And I can tell you, she's like the glue. I mean, she's worked with the NFL for the last, you know, 10 or 12 years. And she's taught me things like uh, she does the, she did the logistics for the Super Bowl, and she worked with the Philadelphia Eagles. And she was telling me that even, even things like um, with housing. Um, you know, you have to, uh, like Andy Reid is a Mormon. He likes to stay at Marriott because it's, it's owned by a Mormon. And so mm. you're really just balancing, which means that you really have to, to really have a successful company, you have to dive into the, the, the small, um, uh, things that are important to people and, and they appreciate it. And, and I've, I've, I've kind of been reminded that. And so that's why every owner uh, that we've had, uh, I'm making a personal visit. We're touring the stadium with them. You know, the first thing I ask is about their family. Uh, and, and I'm the most forgetful person, so I have somebody writing it down. Uh, but those are things that make people, you know, really want to work with you. And I think that's important. Well, first, we're going to pause on the, the sports talk. What? For you <laughs> right now. Oh, don't blame um, it on Jen. Because <laughs> I really want to talk to sports, but I really want to talk about this gentleman to the right of me right now, outside of sports. Uh, a lot of people not, may not know that Mr. Hutton here has done a lot for the community. Mm-hmm. He stays a little behind the curtains. Mm-hmm. Um, even during the pandemic, where it's times when, I'm sorry, brothers trying trying to get back together and understand each other. Um, he's done events with me just out of the kindness of his heart, taking taking the day out of time to share space with me. Um, we've done a couple of events at the Hopkins Center for the Arts mm-hmm. um, where he's come and shared his perspective on life, society, mm-hmm. what it looks like. We had an event here. And also he's still take, he's going to take part in another mm-hmm. event that we are hoping to continue to be an annual event this summer. So important. Um, it's, it's coming soon and whatnot, but um, Minnesota Roots. Are you going to tease him? Or? I'm teasing oh, okay. him. I'm teasing so him a I little bit. Yeah, don't okay. let him know, but like, okay. you know, you little tell me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's why we can quit. I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can quit. Yeah. That's, right. that's right. part of the podcast yeah, strategy. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Minnesota Roots uh, edutainment. Yes. It's a different way of educating our community and whatnot and getting them involved and understand because that's what I've noticed, Mm -hmm. that you have given, I say layman's turn, to people to understand what's going on right now and to feel included. And I want, I'm giving the roses right now. Thank you for everything that you've done in this community and have done with me and have done with Jen as well. Well, I think your words are really kind. I mean, I feel like I could do more. I think it's you guys that are my inspiration. You know, you guys are in the front line, so, you know. And it's a pleasure seeing. And you guys have been great friends. I mean, it's, you know, when you guys call, why wouldn't I run? (laughs) (laughs) You know. Don't don't try maybe cut no onions on here right now. It's because we keep calling. Yeah. It's because we're annoying. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I gotta just come do it. They stop texting. <laughs> no, 
know, Lee, it, this was just such a wonderful conversation. Yeah. And and you are, you've been such a role model to so many youth, particularly in our community. And I've admired mm-hmm. that about you. you. And I just learned so much about our conversations. I was thinking about the first time I got the opportunity to interview you over at interview. Olio. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that was one of the first times we really got to know each other and sit down and talk. Um, well, in front of an audience, it was of like, course. It was like Oprah, Barbara Walters, and everybody put in. It was some yeah, of the best yeah, questions yeah, yeah. I ever had. She was, she was throwing them at you. She was throwing them at yeah, you. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> well, and that event was part of the inspiration mm-hmm. for this podcast. So you, you have been part of the mm-hmm. formation of, of this experience that that we're having together now too so so crazy when we fast forward it to now it now. is yeah. Yeah. yeah i do have one story before we take over today but i was laughing so hard especially when it was about the chris humphreys mm-hmm. and the kim so <laughs> i was in the restroom as i normally am at at home and i hear my son ko yells out in the living room and he goes daddy <laughs> and i'm like what boy he goes, come out here. <laughs> so I run out. I'm like, what What are you screaming about? What is Coach Lee doing on TV <laughs> on the Kardashian show? <laughs> and I'm like, that ain't Coach. Oh, that's Coach. So I call you up. I'm like, dude, what are you doing on the Kardashian show? You go, oh, that episode's on? I was like, so <laughs> casual and whatnot. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I'm sorry. That moment just flashed back it's, when I heard about it. You know, it's fun because uh, even today when, um, you know, the AFL commissioner had to change the social media to, to reflect the AFL commissioner and then the kids that I coach, you know, I, it's, it's, been, it's been great because they're, they're really excited. And uh, you, you kind of forget how many uh, lives that you encourage uh, you know, just being, you know, just seeing it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, talk about onions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just proud because, um, you know, you, you wonder why did God, why they choose you mm-hmm. to be in this situation? Um, and it's humble. You know, so I do my best. They yes. chose they chose you for a reason. Bro. <laughs> mm-hmm. They chose you for yeah. a reason. Don't don't get me cutting onions over here and trying to get everybody right now. We're gonna end the show right now because I don't want to start up. Right, right. First of right. all, thank you. No, thank you. Guys. Thank you, my brother. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Paul Lee. Sorry. Emma. He said he wasn't going to try to make you do that. <laughs> I, know, I know. This is just like a crying fest I'm right, now. I'm holding it. I'm holding it right now. <laughs> this is beautiful, it, though. Is there anything else that's coming up that you would like to share with the audience that's coming up here or <laughs> outside, like for, for Mr. Lee Hutton? You, you know, um, really, I, I love... I love surprises, even in my life. You know, I I think if I had any message for anybody, young, old, or, or whatever, um, just be good, uh, be ready, uh, and take your chance. Mm-hmm. You know, it really we. There's so many times, even my life, where I let opportunities pass by because I talk myself out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think you learn more from failure than you do from success. And, you know, no matter what is out there, I encourage, encourage kids, if you want a job, go get it. You know, if you want to be a CEO, go get it. If you, you know, and, and we, we often forget that it doesn't have to be the CEO. It can be, you know, the person I look back, I talk about Miss Red, the lunch lady. Mm-hmm. I think she had an impact on my life more, you know, just as equal to, to my teachers. Yes. And so, you know, whatever you do, just do it within your ability and do it well. And, you know, I think we have this, you know, we're, we're, we're taught in the media to not be inclusive. And that just drives me nuts. Uh, you know, we, you see it on a daily basis. And I think we really have a generation of kids that have rejected that philosophy more so than I think we realize. And that's what's very promising. I think there's um, uh, kids who are very collaborative. I think the only thing that we have to give them as adults is the space to connect so they can just take it and run with it. So that's why I have you lovely yeah, people around right. so we create that. That's right. Create that. Well, 
Thank you for joining us on Parlay. Thank you. AFL Commissioner Lee A. Hudden. And we're going to leave you. <laughs> with my song? With your song. <laughs> with my that song. takes you to a good, good space <laughs> right, and whatnot. Right. Selector, take us away. Thank you. Thank you. Stand in here, my place and fall.